Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We're taking a break halfway into our four-part series of interviews on Latin America because, as I was heading back from Tijuana and Point South, it occurred to me that next week is a big week for the American left. Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, is holding its first national convention, August 3rd through 6th in Chicago, since the organization has undergone a massive explosion in size. Hundreds of delegates from all over the country will make a lot of important decisions about the direction that the organization, and by extension, the American left as a whole, will take in the coming years. In the wake of Bernie's inspiration and Trump's depredations, DSA quickly became the nation's largest socialist organization. At face value, that might not seem like much. After all, the U.S. hadn't had anything but very small socialist organizations for quite a while. But DSA is actually pretty big by the standards of membership of political organizations in general, at least those that involve more than responding to email action alerts. There are now 24,500 members or so. That's up from 6,500 in early 2016. It's an exciting time for the left and also, with the far right in power, a really terrifying one. Whether you're in DSA or not, this convention will be consequential, and I hope this episode can help shed some light on why in advance. My guests both come from within the Jacobin fold, but are also both running for DSA's National Political Committee on two rival slates. Ella Mahoney is an assistant editor at Jacobin with a background in labor organizing. She's the co-founder of the Brooklyn DSA branch's Electoral Politics Committee and a member of the National Political Education and Internationalism Committees. Ella is running for a seat on the NPC on the Momentum slate. R.L. Stevens is the A. Philip Randolph Fellow at Jacobin, co-host of another Jacobin podcast called From Stockton to Malone, and he's running for NPC on the Praxis slate. Ella and R.L., welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be a this is going to be a huge convention with hundreds of delegates coming from chapters all over the country and it will be the first convention since DSA has undergone this enormous surge in membership. So I want to start out with this incredibly big picture question. For DSA and for the American left more generally, what do you two think the significance of this gathering will be? You know, the DSA emerged in a conservative decade on really like the tail end of the new left and the anti-war movements. Uh, it emerged out of a out of a merger between the New American Movement and DSOC in 1982, um, which is relatively unique. You know, lots of left movements usually emerge out of a split um, between two between one group. When New American Movement and DSOC merged to form the Democratic Socialists of America, that made us 6,000 members. Uh, which is about the number of members that we had uh, two or three years ago before Bernie Sanders did his primary run. And it emerged out of a really genuine desire to reclaim the democratic origins of the socialist movement to the point where it thought mistakenly that the fall of the Soviet Union would be a boost to their membership, which unfortunately it was not. Um, and, out, and it also 
had a pretty unique analysis of factions within the Democratic Party that gave um, that sort of produced concrete plans to realign the Democratic Party to the left, right? Um, and so now, in this moment, some of the goals of that founding DSA have been accomplished. A lot of it not in the way it was imagined by its sort of founding fathers. Um, the social base of the Democratic Party was realigned. You know, the sort of segregationist Dixiecrats um, did go towards the Republican Party, um, and the the social base of of the Democratic Party was liberalized. Um, but in a lot of ways, its actual structure and its corporate control remained. Um, and when Bernie did his primary run. The DSA was still suffering from a few decades of dormancy and defeat, um, with uh, you know a pretty impressive membership. But a lot of that membership was um, was a, a paper membership. It wasn't really an active organization anymore, and it wasn't clear to anyone in those decades between like the 90s and early 2000s why anyone should join a socialist organization. Um, and so that. Um, you know, when Bernie ran, we had a membership explosion. And then when Donald Trump won, we had another membership explosion. There were two waves. Um, and those explosions, I think, vindicated a few things about the early, uh, the early goals of the DSA founders. Um, one of them was that the Big Ten approach um, to building a socialist organization was the correct approach. Um, you know, if if we hadn't had this big tent approach, we really wouldn't have been able to effectively organize uh, Bernie supporters. Um, that you know the the people that were politicized and activated by Bernie's campaign uh, did not have you know clear ideas about where they stood on the Democratic Party or on sort of obscure questions of historical socialism, you know, all they knew was that, yeah, they wanted a political revolution. And we, because of our big tent uh, identity, we were able to honestly organize those people without um, having a sort of like secret internal line um, that was that was against what people were really looking for, right? Um, so that the value of the democratic socialist identity, the non-Stalinist um, identity is clear to this new generation of activists. Um, and this big tent identity, um, it's clear that that is right and it makes sense to the, this new generation. What's sort of less clear is the actual content of the realignment strategy of the Democratic Party. Um, I think that for a lot of people, that's still a question in their mind. Um, and. Uh, Another thing that this new generation is trying to figure out now is uh, without the sort of signposts that the old activists had of the Soviet Union, of the big, powerful social democratic parties in Europe um, that were actually in power in you know, the 60s, 70s, and somewhat in the 80s, um, the sort of task of defining what is the political purpose of a socialist organization and not, you know, not a, a nonprofit, not any other kind of political organization, but a socialist organization. I think that's the the sort of task that the new activists of DSA are trying to figure out um, and which will define the role that DSA plays in American politics more generally in the coming, you know, five years, decade, 25 years. So, um, RL, DSA, not creepy, not Stalinist. Bernie blows up in membership. 
Um, but as Ella said, a lot is left to be defined about DSA's approach to U.S. politics. What sort of things do you see as what do you what do you think will be the big things decided at the convention and their consequence? I would actually like to take a step back and talk about the bigger picture and address some of the history that was laid out um, from 1983 up to today. I think, yes, there were a lot of things that were happening in the Democratic Party and various um, figures within DSA had uh, or participated in that to varying degrees. But I think what we I think I want to talk about my experience at, at, during that time. Now, of course, I was born in 87, but I, I remember that that period very well. And I remember growing up in the inner city at that time. And I remember how it was characterized in my community as a time of like major social decay where the murder rate across the country peaked in 1993. There was the, the, the total decimation of unions over that time in the 80s and, and that we had told that, that totally realigned our community. And we were fighting for, for scraps and for, at, at that stage. Like my dad was, he ran for school board um, in the late 80s on an explicit um, program of getting public education, getting black schools in black neighborhoods black neighborhoods. And both my brother and myself ended up going to each of those schools like for um, a short time. And I, I think that, that this time period was a, was a painful time of collapse and, and decay for a lot of people. And, and that's, it kind of lowered the ambitions of people for a while. Um, you had the Million Man March in 95. You had a little, a couple, few little, little signposts, but really I think I think what DSA is part of is, is actually a revitalization of resistance and like aspiration for like the first time in, in my lifetime, I believe. Um, you can go back to the around 2010 or so, um, especially 2011, you had the Wisconsin, um, the Wisconsin uh, uh, movement where they shut down the state capitol. You have Occupy. You have a lot of things happening. Um, that that took what happened at the WTO process in Seattle in '99 and like took it to like a whole new level. It was kind of popping off around the world globally, but also in the United States. And we had a period where people were more aspirational and more inspired. And so I think that like DSA has been able to also be a, a stable institution that can capture some of those people. That would be like like myself and. Another member of the slate that I'm running on, uh, DSA Praxis, his name is Michael Patterson. We actually met at Occupy DC and we, we were there and we struggled. We threw ourselves completely into it, but we had no infrastructure really. So when that collapsed, when the police came in and beat everybody up and tore everything up, like we didn't have anywhere to go, you know? And so DSA has functioned as a as a, a space where you can not only talk about various ideas, but you can find other people who have a heart for deep transform transformation socially, and you can connect to them and you can try to build something together. And I think that, yeah, there's the idea of it being multi-tendency. What that really means though, is that like you can find other people to connect to and do work together. And that's a, that's a rare thing. And so it's something that I've really, like greatly enjoyed. And I think what that's going to mean going forward is the real question here. And it's a, it's, it's a fight to me, to me, what this convention is, is it's a fight for the soul of this organization. Because like a lot of what's, what's happened with DSA has been, I think, circumstantial. 
Like you have Occupy, you have all of these things happening, you have the Sanders campaign, you have Trump's presidency, a lot of that stuff, you can influence that to a degree, but it's, a, it's created a major window of opportunity, right? So what this convention is, is the chance to actually stake out a political horizon, a, a way to establish a transformative vision, not just of socialism, but, of, like, but to communicate to the society what exactly we see as, as possible. Right. And especially after so much um, social decay and death and violence that happened and like I said, peaked in 93 is and is kind of back in the news again. And the fears and anxieties around that are, are on the rise, which is perfect for the right wing. Right. Who have gone around recruiting on this basis. Um, and Trump has unleashed this this whole new um space in which it's perfectly okay to express these racist and sexist attitudes, thus emboldening, you know, violent social forces that seek to destroy marginalized people first, but society as a whole, you know. And DSA has a chance with this convention, if we take up a political horizon, if we actually embrace methods of base building work and all of that, to actually be able to stand in the gap and to oppose substantively the rise of the right and the collapse of our society. Because it's that thing where it's socialism or barbarism, right? And we have a chance to not only talk about that, but to organize in ways that confront it. And so that I think is what's at, on the table with this convention. You have a lot of people who have kind of come from these various elements, um, especially activist circles and then the electoral campaign of Sanders. And we're trying to figure out how to tie, one of, how to tie this together and how to present a horizon where all those tendencies can kind of uh, can kind of uh, emerge, like emerge, re, re, uh, re-emerge actually, and where we can actually reconfigure how it is we're going to work to, together going forward, and actually change the way we deal with coalitions and 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 do the work of building power collectively in this society to stave off oblivion. Nothing short of oblivion. That's what's on the. That's what's. That's what's at stake. Life and death. And so I believe that like we're going to actually see that kind of political fervor at this convention, and we're going to see a new DSA emerge. Ella, do you agree with how RL has described what's at stake for the convention? Yeah, I would largely agree with it. I mean, I think that uh, Occupy was for for a long time. People have been struggling for. Uh, the things that they cared about in really isolated movements, you know, um, uh, the sort of logic has been that if you care about women's rights, you go over here and you work with a women's rights group. Uh, if you care about racial racial justice, you go over here and you you work in, with this racial justice group. Uh, you know, if you care about money and politics, you go in and join something over here. Uh, to work on money and politics, right? Um, And I think that Occupy was sort of an early sign uh, that people really wanted to join these fights together, but because they recognized that they were being threatened by the same forces from above, right? Um, And uh, and while, while Occupy had a lot lacking to it, you know, it didn't really point to practical ways to move forward on these things. I think it was a flashpoint where people said, realized that these fights had to join together in order to advance at all and that they were being threatened by a common force, which is capitalism and which is the the force of the power of the 
the ruling class, right? And so I think a lot of people joined DSA because they were feeling, because with the election of Donald Trump, it was very, very clear that we had to be organizing and that we had to be organizing together and not apart. And that there was a need for an organization, a place that they could come to week after week, month after month, uh, you know, make concrete next steps to uh, and have a political home, right? Uh, in in which they, they could start to cohere this resistance, right? Um, and so I, I would agree with RL that that's what is at stake. I think that there are a lot of questions of how we actually go about cohering those struggles together and you know respecting their individual needs while also making sure that that we're we're still all in this together at the end of the day, right? Um, and so I think that that's. There are a few things that point the way towards that. You know, Medicare for all is something that across the organization, people have been very emphatic that they want to pursue. Um, and I think it's because, you know, with this attack on healthcare by Republicans, it's become very clear that for them, all of these issues are, are connected, right? They see healthcare as a way to defeat the working class as a whole, to, to hurt the working class and the left as a whole, because it's a life or death issue. You know, when people are struggling from day to day just to attain some level of health care, you know, when they can't go to work because they've been disabled, um, when, you know, they're struggling to pay the bills because they can't work because they're sick, because they're in medical debt, you know, that affects a whole range of other issues and it keeps us from fighting, right? Um, uh, and so there's, I think that people have a lot of different ideas about how to do a Medicare for all um, campaign, but the the consensus in the organization that we want to do a Medicare for all campaign has, I think, showed a step towards what it looks like to be a socialist organization fighting as one um, for all of the different struggles that that we're locked under, right? Um, and so that's one, one example of something that is at stake in this convention. Well, uh, so we've talked a little bit about what's at stake, but if you could both go into a little more just sort of concretely what's on the table yeah. what will be debated and voted on because for DSA members listening um, you know they're going to be talking to their delegates about what kind of votes they what kind of decisions that they want those delegates to take in Chicago wait yeah I wanted to actually rewind for a second though because I think Ella brings up a really good opportunity to talk about what that would look like a little bit um, because the the we had a straw poll that listed, Medicare for all, aka well, healthcare, uh, as the number one concern by by and large, the number one concern for the membership, right? But then the third concern was criminal justice, right? And so, uh, what I think is at stake here, and why I think that like the question of how do we tie these these interests together, like that's a way because in order to actually do a healthcare program, right? To actually get this, the resources for it, you're going to have to confront the criminal justice system. Because here in Chicago, the largest portion of the budget at the city level, and this is the case in, in a lot of cities and, um, and just generally, uh, 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 of, uh, there, there's a massive disproportionality when it comes to punitive systems 
in, in how we actually fund social services, that's our default response, right? Because of that, if you want to fund education, if you want to fund healthcare, you're going to have to divest from policing and prisons being the number one response to people with disabilities, for example. You know, that where do those people actually go as it's currently, as our healthcare system currently stands, right? They go to prison. They go to the, that, that's what happens, you know? And they're abused and tortured in there, right? The police, one of the first things that the cops do in any major city is they go out and they round up homeless people, many of whom have, have disabilities, and they go out and clear them out of public, right? And so this issue of like where we're gonna get the money and how do we attach the concerns, the life and death ish, uh, uh, consequences of a lack of these services, like that has to be part of the framework we use to design campaigns that are comprehensive and create possibilities for new coalitions, deeper organizing and radical transformation. And we can actually do that. We can start talking about that at this convention, right? Like if we wanna pursue healthcare, then let's use a divestment reinvestment framework, which is part of an abolitionist horizon when it comes to policing and the prison system. And so, like, that's the kind of thing that's on the table. Even it's more than just like the specific policy proposals that are going to be debated. And there's because there's not enough time to actually debate, like substantively debate every single thing that is um, uh put up in the resolution and amendment process. There's, there's dozens upon dozens of them, right? So a big part of what's gonna happen at this convention is about establishing that horizon, right? Establishing the organizing culture, talking about, really talking about the methods and practices that we actually wanna use and how those reflect the horizons we establish. There are gonna be, in addition to the actual debates and votes, there are gonna be strateg like strategy sessions, panels, chances for caucuses to meet and talk. Like it's all of it is designed to actually set, to establish what the culture, what the vision, what the horizon and what the methods are for this organization going forward. And that as a whole is what I'm excited about. And that's what people should really be paying attention to is the totality, including these trainings and including these, uh, the caucuses and, and the like. It's, it's really a chance to establish who we are and what we see as the future, not only of DSA, but of this society. And that's what's at stake. And people are watching. People are watching. And they're trying to decide, what is DSA someone, uh, an organization that I want to A, work with, and B, join? What is, and their political horizon that we set forward, the ambition that we set forward at this convention is gonna be a major signal to them as to what kind of organization, what kind of organizing space we seek to create going forward. And how relevant is that to the anxieties, the deep anxieties that the Trump administration, as well as the general trend of neoliberal decay, you know, you have housing crises, you have all of this stuff that the catch-all system dealing with all of this decay is the prison and police system. And you have a major movement of people of color on the ground and poor people who are trying to deal with the material life and death consequences of it. And DSA, if we take this up, can actually have something to a real, a real, a real opportunity to incorporate these struggles, to attach the particularity of that oppression to our universal policies and demands, and to do so in a way that actually pushes the, the limits of political imagination forward and makes this space not one to just watch, but one to participate in. Yeah, um, so there are a 
whole lot of resolutions being put forward at the convention. Um, and I won't be able to go over all of them, but a few of the important ones are um, one of them, which links a little bit to what RL was talking about earlier, is the resolution to endorse the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, um, which was actually originally put forward as a sort of um, a resolution of something that we just think that any socialist organization should have done a long time ago uh, if it means to take itself seriously, right? Um, but actually, uh, just in the past couple of weeks, um, both Republicans and Democrats have put up uh, this bill in the House, I believe, um, to criminalize uh, BDS, to criminalize anyone who supports BDS, um, and to actually attach, you know, criminal punishments to that. Um, and so now the resolution to support BDS has taken on a, a much less symbolic and more real um, more real meaning, right? And it connects us to these these struggles against criminalization. Um, and what Praxis proposed of going a step further um, and starting to target those links between Israeli police, the, the trainings that happen between Israeli police and American police, um, I think that that was a really good way of deepening the, the BDS proposal um, even more. Uh, as well, and we have another international uh, resolution being put forward, which is to leave the Socialist International. Now, I've, we, we put this resolution forward uh, two years ago at the last convention, and it failed. I think that it has much more broad support now. And why is that? Is because people see, people want meaningful international relationships um, between BDS and and socialist movements abroad, right? And right now we're affiliated to an international that has, um, whose one of its most important members is the French Socialist Party, right? Oh, which spent, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which spent most of last year implementing horribly anti-worker um, reforms. Um, killing and, spoil and spoiling the election for Mélenchon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and not even not even just um, anti worker reforms, but like um, you know anti civil liberties reforms. Uh, you know, putting in states of emergency um, that really just served to to uh, criminalize Arab American populations in France, right? Um, and when when people protested against these, um, they were met with tear gas and police repression, right? Um, and so this is the international that we're affiliated to right now. Um, and I think people are starting to recognize that it's time to go. It's time to cut it out, right? Um, and so I'm really happy with these resolutions because in international politics specific, specifically, I think that uh, socialists have a tendency, because it seems so abstract and because of the basic fact that we don't actually have control over what happens in other countries, you know, um, people fall into a sort of resolutionary socialism, which is like making a lot of statements um, that are like moral statements that you obviously agree with, you know, like we're against imperialism. Yeah, of course we're against imperialism. Um, <laughs> uh, that's what any socialist organization is about, right? Um, but these these resolutions, I think, will move us towards a more concrete steps um, to having a more fulfilling and more real um, 
internationalism um, within DSA, right? Um, and uh, beyond those resolutions, um, there are a lot of resolutions that seem sort of technocratic and boring when you when you first look at them, but I think that are actually really important for DSA. Um, you know, there are resolutions about uh, our dues structure. Um, reforming our dues structure and raising dues. Um, this seems rather technocratic, but really it goes to the heart of who we are as a socialist organization. Um, if I, I really think that if you believe in the self-activity of the working class um, and and the ability of of us as working class people to make our own our own movements and to struggle against capitalism, um, then we have to fund our own organizations, right? Um, uh, then we we have to find ways to to survive and thrive without corporate money, without grant money, without um, donations that will tell us what kind of politics we have to have, and you know what kind of projects we should take on. Uh, so do structure is really important and having a, a really healthy debate over how we're going to do that do structure is vital to to the form and identity of our organization, right? Um, there's also a few re resolutions about deepening the democracy and, and the debate internal to DSA. Um, so that would, you know, revive um, revive the activist conference, which is something that happens um, by every um, once a year, right? And that hasn't happened in a long time and would give people a chance besides the the national convention to come together nationally and to debate, and to debate things. We want to bring back, um, bring an internal bulletin for people to have debate. We want to reform the democratic left. And these are important because most work in DSA happens in working groups, right? So in my local, we have um, lots of different working groups working on lots of different issues. There's a housing working group, there's a racial justice working group, there's a socialist feminist working group, there's all kinds of working groups, right? Um, and that's where the majority of any DSA members' work happens within the, these working groups, right? And so deepening internal debate and discussion with, within DSA is the place where those things can come together for people, right? Um, where people can talk about how those things relate to each other. Um, and so, you know, introducing an internal bulletin for discussion for DSA seems kind of dry and like academic, but really it's where we can start to bring these different struggles that are happening um, that everybody is pursuing in DSA into a single space and bringing people from, from their isolated locals into a single space and to have them start communicating with each other. So those are, you know, those, that's a very small slice of, of some of the resolutions that are being put forward at the convention, but uh, I, I think they can give you a little bit of an idea of what's being put forward. Um, Ariel, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, yeah, a few things. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate all of the, the resolutions that Ella brought up. I think they're really important to, to discuss. Again, um, I think that's why this is such a huge convention, because the question here is, and let me back up for a second. So I graduated from law school. I went to G, uh, George Washington in D.C., right? And I hated law school, okay? <laughs> but 
the one thing that I took out of it uh, that I think um, is re has been really relevant for me um, as I try to do this work is there's a difference between the law as it is written and, and how it is implemented, right? And so I, I really learned this, the significance of, of implementation, the process, right? How a bureaucracy functions. And so why I say that is because we actually, I, I agree with Ella that people go around saying, uh, these, making these declarations about stuff that they have no methods and no intention of uh, implementing through a program or through any sort of process, right? And that typically happens not just with imperialist uh, uh, rhetoric or anti-imperialist rhetoric, I should say, but also anti-racism, anti-sexism. All of these things are things that people tend to talk about but not actually have in a program, uh, not actually implement in any meaningful way, right? And not tie the methods of how you organize to how you create a different way of engaging one another that can overcome those divisions, that can actually attack those systems. That's 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 where we as practice want to get in, want to want to deal. And so let's talk about this thing called anti-imperialism. I think that it's not safe to assume that every socialist group has an anti-imperialist anti-imperialist perspective. Excuse me. It's not safe to assume that actually. Not historically, and I, I don't want to talk about all of that crap, but like historically, that's the case. But also within our own group, that's that's the case, too. People have different opinions about this. And it's something that it's not to me something that should be debated. But if the question is, how do we implement an anti-imperialist program for real? This is a I mentioned Michael um, earlier. He's running with me. Michael Patterson is running with me on DSA Praxis. Um, he's a veteran. This is a big deal to him. He actively participated in crimes against humanity while he was in the army. He, he, this, he has PTSD as, as the result of it. And for him, the question of anti-imperialism is about the state of his own, his own soul, right? He wants to rectify the type of destruction that he waged in, that, in Iraq on behalf of the US government. And he is, there's a veterans working group that feels just as strongly as he does about needing to rectify this, right? So one of the things that, that is being discussed, again, implementation, how does this, how does this mean anything in any, in any real sense? Is how do we attach programs that we're already attempting to do, like let's say a jobs program, how do we use that as a vehicle to attack imperialism? So for example, he, Michael was poor, he grew up broke. And he looked at the military as a way to sustain himself. So at 17, he signed up. What he wishes is that there would have been this socialist project, this thing to come and, and redirect him. Not just debate him, but actually redirect him through organizing him into a different life, through, a personal, through relationships. He needed an intervention in his personal life, not all these interventions abroad around the world or an intervention in Iraq, right? So these things are actually connected. And we have to take them up. And so it's not something that we can just uh, debate, right? It's something that has to be programmatically, systematically implemented and taken seriously, right? So what do, what do I mean by that? Like, what, what does that look like? So it's really actually a, a key element for Praxis because it's not just Michael. Um, Leslie is indigenous, right? These things, as far as imperialism, as far as how that affects indigenous populations uh, that... that uh, here, it's, it, it's a major issue, one that we saw spring, uh, like explode in the Standing Rock issue, which is also a tied to environmentalism and the very nature of capitalist resource exploitation. 
and that there was there were labor unions that wanted the pipeline. You know, there was all this conflict that was exposed. The repression of the state was on was on full display. There are political there there are people who went to jail because of this, like that are still there. Like this is this was a big deal, and a, imperialism was a major function of it, or a major feature of it. And we need to actually recognize that, and then organize uh, to 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 oppose it. Last thing I'll say is another person on our uh, on Praxis was actually engaged, recognizes this. She actually was is a is a, on the is in the Democratic Party. She's a party officer in Tennessee. Her name's Allie Cohn. Now, Allie, people will hear like, oh, she's she's uh, she's um, the executive on the executive committee of the local Democratic Party. Chill. <laughs> they can dismiss, be dismissive, right? But Allie actually organized a 20-week solidarity circle in Knoxville to support what was going on at Standing Rock. And they sent resources. They met every week, right? And they would send resources. They would um, also do things locally to intervene in the process, like to do divestment work locally, to uh, actually support the work materially. So they actually went and walked in around. It was a total of 10 miles because they went to every single SunTrust bank in Knoxville, Tennessee, and got people, recruited people to, to pull their accounts from that bank because SunTrust was invested in the pipeline. Right. And so she sees that work also as an anti-imperialist element. Right. And we should talk about it in those terms because what we do matters. We're going to talk more about um, the Democratic Party in a few minutes. But RL, first, um, since we sort of put the cart before the horse on this one, can you lay out just generally speaking the the Praxis platform and Slate? And then I'm going to ask Ella to do the same um, with regard to Momentum. Yeah, I, I think I was talking about it a bit. It's focused on praxis. That's where the name comes from, right? The unity of, the, of theory and practice. So what we're, what we're saying is the theory is that we need a, a, a mass movement, right? So what are the methods, what are the practices necessary to, establish, to, to create that mass first? Because you have to build a base to actually and have relationships and, and know who's in our group and where they're connected and all of that stuff. We need to build that base first. So we focus on a training program, a national training strategy. I, it's already in, in motion. I'm on the training, the national training team. So is Ravi Ahmed, who's, who's also on Praxis. Um, and we want to actually create, we've, we've already done this, and it's been useful for me in Chicago as we've done trainings here. Um, there's, there, there, we don't have a way to support training so that all of the chapters, chapters can evenly develop, right? Like so that you don't have to go out of pocket to buy training materials, for example, which is what we're doing now. That you don't have to like reinvent the wheel when you're trying to talk about like an organizing conversation. We need like modules that can present some of this. Of course, local people can like innovate. That's the that's fine. But like, let's create some baseline stuff to help support people because a lot of our people have never organized before. And so we're talking about these big issues and these big campaigns we're going to do. We're going to get Medicare for all or we're going to get universal. You know, we're going to revolutionize the healthcare system. OK, like what methods and how and what's the philosophy behind these methods? Right. So we have a base building, trust based organizing philosophy around relationship building that's necessary to overcome the kinds of divisions that people face and to sustain people from campaign to campaign. Because guess what? We might lose a campaign. But if we organize 
to build a base, to build a constituency, it can sustain us from campaign to campaign. And that's what's important as we begin doing the work. So again, back to this idea of implementation, we also think that the dues issue is a major issue. Thank you, Ella, for bringing that up. But it's going to be one thing to pass a dues resolution. It's a whole other thing to implement it, right? And so what we propose is that we need a dues campaign. And that's actually something that I'm familiar with because I used to be a staffer at Unite Here. And so we actually had to do a dues campaign. And let me tell you, it was very difficult. <laughs> uh, there's, it was extremely difficult. I was out there in the airport talking to members. And keep in mind that the wages in the airport here in Chicago at O'Hare are like at least $6. There's a six, they're $6 higher, right, because of the union. And, and they're, they're, at, they're engaged in a struggle right now to try to get health care for everyone. This could be radically alter what it means to work at the airport. And it's amazing, right? Even then, with all of that, it was an uphill battle to get people to sign up to pay 10, just $10 a month more in dues. It was a struggle, right? And so this thing around dues is something we're going to have to struggle through. We're going to have to organize this. And so the, the, the actual proposal or, or, the system or, or, or the actual rule itself needs to be as simple as possible. That's our position. Make it simple, make it flexible, okay? And so that we can actually organize, have organizing conversations with as every single member of this 20, you know, nearly 25,000 uh, member organization. We need to engage them. And that means we're going to have to have a substantive program to talk to them about. Because like I said, there's a real program out there at the airport. We have the program, right? And it was still hard. So what is the program of DSA? What is that horizon? How are we going to inspire people? Because they were inspired by Bernie Sanders. They were inspired in a, in a like totally like scared slash enraged way by the Trump administration, right? By his, his presidency. But it's inspired, it lit a fire under people. And so they joined and paid the money initially up front. But what is going to lay that, light that fire now that's going to actually make it so that we can retain members talk about the program, get people who have not been involved back into the, into the movement, into, into the process. Well, how are we going to inspire them? And that has, to be, that has to be a conversation about both the political horizon that is ambitious, that is also, also uh, uh, implemented through methodologies that make sense, that bond people, that bind them through struggle and heartache and pain to actually see the horizon, right, and reach for it. We have to actually talk to them in those terms. We have to, that means we have to design campaigns that, are, that like reflect that, that process, that praxis, right? So to me, that's, that's also another issue. And the last thing I'll say is that um, we need coordinating bodies. Ella brought up how debate would help bring people together. Um, I think like, that can be true for some people, right? What I also think is that the, the deepest bonds that I felt you know, going back to Mike, with Michael six years ago, we, he moved away. We haven't seen each other in years, right? But because we were engaged and we struggled together, we did stuff together, that bond is always fresh, right? And so what we believe is that to actually facilitate these bonds, we need to do more than uh, have debate dis or discussions. We also need to have coordination on programs, regionally especially, because we have a lot of people in these, like, like Ella mentioned, in red states, who are in rural areas, who are in small towns, who have small chapters, right? And so regional coordination through like a, a, a body that can 
one, disseminate some of this training material and, and be a resource for people to have clear and open communication, um, especially with national, but also with each other. Um, that is a really big issue. And, it, and the reason why we're pushing that so hard is because our slate has people, uh, has Zaki Cola from North Dakota, has Leslie Driscoll from Oklahoma City, has Ali Cohn from Knoxville, Tennessee, has Celeste Early from Anchorage, Alaska, and Mike Patterson from Anchorage, Alaska. These people need these types of coordinating bodies to actually connect. Like, it's not going to be debate that's going to keep them in this. It's not going to, that's not, that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be actually building programs together. Even if you struggle, even if you don't win every single one. And some of the issues, the last thing I'll say why this is important, and we put this in the platform, some of the issues uh, that we're facing, like abortion, for example, that issue varies from state to state, right? And so regional coordination is necessary to actually deal with the issue of abortion. To, there, there are ride shares and all kinds of opportunities for coordination, right? And especially considering that Trump declared, now he's completely dysfunctional as an administrator, so who knows whether this would actually happen. But Trump declared that like, it should go back to the states, the issue of abortion, right? So how can we have the infrastructure set in place for our socialist, feminist, working groups and, and just women and people who, who give birth more broadly, like to be able to um, have, a, have coordinating systems to deal with the chaos and the panic and the fear of what that would mean potentially. We need these bodies to be established now so that we can be ready when things happen and we can have those relationships, we can have the training and so that people have the skills to respond to crisis. Because that's what's happening right now politically. You got crisis after crisis after crisis. Whether we're talking deportation, police killings, evictions, it's, these are crises. And so we need stability in the organization. And we need people with skills who know how to build relationships with people to meet them at the point of crisis. And to tell them that this organization, DSA, has a vision that can transform your life, transform my life, and deal with the issues of crisis in a transformative way. And that's what, what we want to do. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of The Dig, which you probably already knew because you're listening to The Dig. Anyhow, I need your support to keep this going. So please go to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Look up The Dig and make a contribution. Even a little bit helps, but a lot helps a little bit more. Either way, thank you, and back to the show. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's this focus on capacity building because huge numbers of people have come into DSA, which is great, but it also poses problems around cohesion, structure, and organizing skills, something that, that cadre organizations have, but, you know, though with much smaller numbers of people. Um, Ella, can you tell me a little bit uh, about Momentum, its slate, and its platform? So Momentum came out of, uh, all of us have been in DSA for a couple of years, um, some for quite a while. Jared has been in DSA for eight years. Um, and uh, Momentum came out of our organizing experiences with DSA and a sort of shared analysis of what 
was missing from those experiences and what we felt like we needed to propose to the organization to build consensus around in the organization in order to make it a stronger organization, in order to make it a deeper organization, right? Um, and so what, what we propose is as a very broad framework is a class struggle road to socialism. Um, and that, I think that actually goes right to this question of capacity building and base building. You know, I was there when we had the membership explosion, right? Um, and it felt really, really exciting um, because, you know, I was, at that time, I had just founded the electoral working group um, in Brooklyn DSA. Um, we had founded that group out of an earlier experience with with Brooklyn DSA in endorsing a local candidate for state senate and um, and doing that campaign for for state senate with her, and then. Um, forming this working group as a way to consolidate the conclusions we had come um, to that, the the sort of framework we had started to build for local elections out of that, right? Um, and so the first meeting I had with that working group, I think we had 15 people in the room at max, you know? Um, and then Trump got elected and the next meeting we had um, had 110 people in the room, right? <laughs> um, and that was for like a working group um, uh, that, um, you know, suddenly I was at the helm of like a mini organization, right? It was very overwhelming. Um, and so what became really, really clear when we had that membership explosion was that it was imperative to have a clear idea of what we were doing why we were doing it and how we were going to incorporate the new people, right? Because the fastest way to lose new members was to show up at a meeting and be like, I don't have a plan. Um, uh, like, I don't have, I can't tell you anything about why you're here, you know? Um, and so that's essentially what we are trying to put forward for the rest of the organization, um, you know, we're not trying to impose something from above, but we felt that it was important to put forward uh, a really comprehensive, detailed platform that people could take. And, you know, uh, it's much easier to put forward your own proposal when you have something to to sort of contrast that with, right? Um, to, to argue against. Um, and so uh, a lot of stuff has come uh, out after our platform, basically, that I honestly I think has been much more detailed because it was able to contrast our, itself to our platform, right? Um, and so we wanted to do that to as a way to cohere some of the the things that we've seen since this membership explosion, and more generally from the work that we've been doing for years within DSA. You know, um, all of us want to organize as many people as possible outside of the DSA, right? Um, we see the 13 million people that voted for Bernie Sanders as the natural base of, of DSA and the people that we need to be look, looking to organize, right? But retaining the members that we have now is really, really key for organizing those new people um, because 
if you don't invest in your members, if you don't feel like they have a political home here, if you don't build them up and develop them, right, and and have them confident in what they're doing, then they're not really great represent, um, representations of DSA to new people, right? Um, like they won't feel so confident in a conversation with someone about um, why they should join a DSA campaign or why they should join DSA itself, right? Um, and so investing in in those new members is really important. And we don't view that as separate from training them, right? Like training um, and actual skills sharing is crucial to building up those new members, but so is proposing strategies, so is proposing larger visions, right? Because people feel, because that's really, key to showing people that there is something that they can plug into, you know? Um, uh, and so that's why we thought it was really important to put forward a comprehensive platform. Now, I think the two things that really distinguish our platform um, in, sp in specific are our electoral strategy um, and our rank and file um, labor strategy. All right. So Ella said something very, very interesting just now, uh, which she talked about the timeline of platform um, proposals coming out and the fact that their platform came out first. Uh, and then she said that it's easier to come out with a platform if you're comparing it to someone, to something, something else. And so up to this point, I hadn't really talked about this openly. I hadn't talked about this openly, but because of that statement, I want to make something clear. Because I've seen a meme, some memes that have been up on the internet saying that we copied um, their platform and and all of it. It's been really offensive. And hold on, I, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna finish my. I just okay. want to finish my statement. Thank you. It's it's been offensive to have this out in the atmosphere. So I want to say something. First of all, and this is the first time I'm gonna say this publicly. I was invited by Momentum to be on their slate. I resigned because of political differences, because there's a fundamental difference of approach to organizing and to strategy. See, it's captured in something that was just said where, where it's like that we need to have this thing that tells the people why they're here, right? And I say that we need to actually ask them why they're here and we need to connect to them. And through that process, we can incorporate political education as a process of discovery. This is, a, first of all, it's an organizing method issue. Second of all, it's an issue of, of, of pedagogy, right? And these are, these are differences. And that's why the platforms are designed differently, right? And so that's one thing. And I, I take, I, I just, I'm actually kind of hurt by this implication that we just copied this. Like that's the implication there, and that's been thrown around on the internet. And it's like not—it's not cool, especially when it's not true. When there is an actual substantive political difference, as then that—that that was I expressed to to everyone on Momentum and resigned because of it. Like that's—it's not true that we don't have distinctions. I just think that the purpose is to not run against people. Like I'm not running against—I'm not—I'm not running against Momentum. I'm running for this horizon, for with these people on this team called Praxis. And so instead of engaging in a conversation where I say, well, this is why I left momentum and X, Y, Z, I don't want to do that. I want to talk to people about what inspires me about being in this group. And so to have people then turn around and say, 
oh, this is just copying and it's easy to just come out with something when there's something already out there. That's false. And then second of all, if we're talking about comprehension, you know, I mean, a comprehensive approach, like the, the fact is like to me, and this is the, the nature of my work. This is what I've been doing the last publicly as far as articles that I've written and the like for the last five years is the question of what does it mean to really do class-based struggle in a way that is actually comprehensive, right? And so in the, plat in the Momentum platform, there's some discussion around like race and, and the like, but it's not actually brought into, it doesn't manifest throughout the work. And so, and that's, that to me is the issue. That's part of the problem for me. But I didn't wanna just be out here talking about, well, tit for tat, well, this one has this and this one's different and this, well, who does that help, you know? But what I want to tell people is that if we want to have a class-based struggle, we need to do so in a way that's rooted in these types of deeper organizing relationships, because there's a lot of pain and anger that comes from sexism and racism and the like. There's also, these things are impediments to organizing, and they can't simply just be debated around. It's not like I can just tell people what, what, what the deal is. You have to actually organize them out of it. And that obviously includes a, a political education component. But I think that the political education has to be rooted in the actual political work that we're doing, right? Which has to also be reflected in the methods we take up. And so that's the issue for me. And so I think like to the, you know, the people on the internet who are sharing some of this stuff, like it, it just really doesn't create an environment where we can actually talk about positive visions for the future. And it incentivizes this kind of, tit for tat, basically mean-spirited approach to, to engaging one another that I just don't think is productive. And there's, because there's a lot of things that can be said, right, to attack one another. But why do that in this group? Like, seriously, like, I, like, I, I, I one of the things I want to know, you know, is, for example, what's your commitment to the abolitionist horizon? Like, I want to know that because I'm curious, because I want to work with you all going forward. I'm not going to then turn around and just try to attack you over it just because it's our, it's, it's our line. That's not okay. You know, that doesn't help us grow. And so I just, I just want that kind of stuff to stop, you know, because it's been really disheartening to see. Um, Ella, uh, you want to respond? Yeah. Um, I think that I want to, I would say that my choice of words was a little bit too general and not careful. When I talked about that dynamic of putting out a platform and getting responses, I was thinking very specifically about our March in Washington proposal, which um, inspired unanimous opposition from the membership. Um, like, uh, I don't think that there was any, there were maybe like three people who uh, supported the March in Washington idea, right? Uh, and it was not, uh, easy facing that kind of unanimous opposition and basically the entire organization saying that they absolutely hated the idea, you know, um, and that they would do anything to oppose the idea. But the upside of that is that um, it inspired like very comprehensive responses um, and people, because they hated the idea of a March on Washington so much, um, they got to work um, like putting out very detailed um, alternate on ideas on how to do a national Medicare for all um, 
program. I think that those people already had those ideas and were already working on those ideas. It's not that um, we were the only reason why those ideas came out there, but I think it created a, a sort of urgency to put it, putting their their own ideas out there um, in order to counter ours, right? Um, and so, no, I agree with you that um, the implications that um, Praxis Cognitas are offensive and also don't make sense because I do think that there are genuine political differences and I think that um, it was, uh, it was, I think that your choice to resign was one that had a lot of integrity because, um, you know, it showed that you, that you take those differences seriously, right? Um, uh, and that this is not just like a, a joke or like a reading circle where these differences don't matter, right? Um, uh, I, I think that that was a, a decision with integrity, you know? Um, on the question of abolitionism, I, I think that that's become really interesting. You know, one of the resolutions that I didn't mention before was the Afro-Socialist Caucus, um, which is being organized out of, um, by a few people, but one of one of the leading figures that's organizing the Afro-Socialist Caucus is Bianca Cunningham in New York City. Um, and the way that it was organized was really interesting. She started doing these uh, Afro-Socialist happy hours um, and expected them to move sort of slowly um, and to be just sort of like a beginning space for for um, for Afro-socialists to meet each other. And it actually ended up sparking organization quite quickly and sparking um, a new coalition with um, BYP 100, um, uh, Black, Black Youth Project 100 um, that uh, you know, I think DSA has tried to have a coalition with BYP 100 before and it's fallen through. And Bianca and the Afro-Socialist Caucus are the people who were able to pull it off, right? And who are able, or, and who are starting to, to make that, um, to make that commitment. Um, and so the, what the discussion, there's no single momentum position on abolition or on the Afro-Socialist Caucus. Um, what we do say is that we absolutely support the um, the development of the Afro-Socialist Caucus. Um, there are certain things in Praxis's plank um, on, on abolitionism that we absolutely do support. We think that there are some really good concrete proposals. Um, uh, what we do worry about is um, DSA's history. Um, you know, two years ago, DSA endorsed the platform for the movement for black lives, right? It was a pretty detailed platform. There was a lot there. Um, and in those two years, not much has really happened in DSA in order to fulfill that platform, right? Um, and I think that the reason why there wasn't that much movement is because, um, you know, there was not it was sort of like a symbolic signing off on uh, on that platform that people didn't interrogate, right? Like people felt good about signing the platform, but they didn't interrogate like what the actual steps would have to be in order to fulfill that platform, um, to fulfill the, the calls of that platform, right? Um, and so um, 
what we worry about is is we want to see like a bottom-up organization-wide discussion on what a, a DSA racial justice platform should look like and how to involve every single chapter and every single member in fulfilling that platform. And so, you know, what with the Afro-Socialist Caucus, it's sort of tied into, um, they're endorsing the BYP 100 platform, which I think is a very good platform. Um, but we basically just worry that, you know, without a longer term um, organic, like organization-wide discussion and like deep understanding of what this platform means and what it proposes, um, that it's going to go the way of the movement of the movement for black lives uh platform right um and so you know we want to pursue those these goals and we want to we want the afro socialist caucus to deep to have as much room as possible to do the work that it wants to do um and and to and to deepen the work that it wants to do. All we worry about is um, making sure that our steps are not symbolic, but actually real and something that um, every member feels substantive, substantively connected to. Um, I yeah, want to step, but, oh, go ahead. But the difference between establish, uh, 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 paying lip service to BLM's plat very detailed platform and establishing a, a a more ra a radical political horizon is that one is actually like tied to like a way that we evaluate the campaigns that we take up both locally and nationally. So what I'm saying about the app, what makes abolition different as a her political horizon, something that we need to imagine and with the same fervor that we talk about anti-capitalism, which is also something that's not here now <laughs> in, in its final form, but which has seeds and present actions that can one day sprout forth these types of revolutions. We need to have the same kind of approach to this issue of, of violence in the society because that's necessary for the work that we're trying to do. This is, not, this is something that's gonna come to us because of how the state works. And so it's, it's, it's not just like, oh, the issue of abolition is a black issue and it's on par with, it's exactly the same as um, uh, uh, endorsing the movement for black lives or the Afro-Socialist uh, Caucus. It's actually part of, yes, creating the space for those demands to be taken seriously and integrated into the work, but it's also an issue of any campaign that we do is going to actually have to wrestle with Repression. We need to have infrastructure like jail support, um, all these types of things that like deal with this this issue, right? And so it's also part of that too. There needs to be a commission that like really considers violence. And so the the, la the last thing I'll say about it is like the re the what we're trying to do, and I said this earlier in the in the call, is that it's it's a push to use this abolition. Horizon to talk about it, to talk about the framework in the here and now and attach that to any campaign, big campaign that we're trying to do. And to teach people about the divestment and actually integrate it into the programming, to actually integrate this issue of violence into what the campaigns were taking out or taking up. That's what motivated us to do the connection between the police here domestically and the, uh, and the state of Israel and the exchange programs that exist there for teaching these police how to brutalize people in a more efficient manner. That is tied to this horizon and it's tied to this framework and it's talking about divestment. 
And we proposed, we, we, I, I, I laid it out just, just now, that this, this issue of abolition and, it, and the abolition framework, particularly the, the, the divestment and reinvestment process that is part a feature of the BYP and BLM uh, platform. See, this is the difference. It's not just a general blanket signing on to the whole thing. Like, who, did everybody really read it? That, yeah, okay, you know, that's a question. Is what is the people's commitment to reading it and actually and actually integrating it, right? No, this is very different. It's taking specific things from that and tying it to the very vision of who we are as an organization, and then using that to anchor various campaigns when appropriate, like BDS, like healthcare, like like it's just it's it's not some far off thing. It's like basic math. Okay, even if you don't want to consider the the deeper philosophical questions around state violence and whether or not what about the bad people, you know, if you don't want to talk about all of that, right? Basic math suggests that it's a very good idea for us to use a divestment reinvestment strategy when talking about the healthcare program that we want to advance nationwide. Even Chelsea Manning, just like two days ago, called for that in response to Donald Trump dropping the transgender ban in the military. She goes, we need to divest from the state, you know, from the, from the military, intel, and prison systems, and use that money for a universal health care program. That's exactly what we're talking about. That is, a, that is a reflection of this abolitionist horizon and the framework that we're trying to set up. And that is, that is a beautiful thing, and it will resonate with people, okay? People who face oppression and deal with the consequences, like a Chelsea Manning. That's why she gets it. And that's why we're proposing it. And it's deeper than just saying, oh, we want to have this buy-in from the membership. Of course. That's why we're building all these structures from the ground up and talking about regional, regional stuff and all of that. What we really need is to be ambitious in a way that is, that's reflected in methods, like a divestment reinvestment approach. That's key. And so to, 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 to get to this future, to actually be relevant in these communities, to develop a more radical politics that can rise to the occasion, an occasion in which barbarism is, 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 is a daily reality for people, right? We're not at socialism or barbarism. Barbarism's here, okay? And we gotta have something to say about it, and we gotta be doing something about it, and it's gotta be at the very core of who we feel we are. And that is what is at stake at this convention. Um. Ella, following up on the single-payer issue that both of you have been discussing, there has been a bit of a debate over the question of whether DSA should organize a national march for Medicare for all. And until recently, I believe that was a piece of the Momentum, your slate, uh, the Momentum platform. Um, Michael Kanukin, writing at Jacobin, summarized a lot of the criticisms that I've I've seen uh, about the march, the national march ideas, um, writing that, we need to pick campaigns that bridge the gap between our long-term socialist goals and the realities of working people's daily lives, as well as between national coordination and local organizing. A march on Washington in support of federal legislation does not meet these criteria. It squanders time, money, and energy. Even worse, it sets up members for defeat and disappointment. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Momentum's perspective on this and its response to this debate? Yeah, you know... Momentum has always thought that it is important to do a Medicare, a Medicare for All campaign uh, because it's become very clear that 
there is a serious need for single payer in this country that Obamacare has still left about 27 million people uninsured and that people are actually dying from the status quo, right? Um, and we originally cohered uh, the we originally cohered the idea of a march on Washington out of our belief that if there is a campaign for Medicare for all, it has to be a national campaign. Because while there are some states where the, a fight for state single payer could be successful, like in California, like in New York, there's actually a possibility in those states that we could achieve single payer on the state level. Um, it's not possible for us to go state by state by state because you know there are states where it's really really hard to achieve single payer at the state level. You know, there are states where Republican, that are totally com controlled by Republican legislatures that have been blocking Medicaid dollars for years now that are really reactionary state governments and where it would be very, very hard for us to achieve single payer on the state level. And so having a national campaign is key for not leaving those states out to dry and the people who live in those states out to dry, right? Um, and those, you know, those, uh, majority Southern, majority conservative states, red states, um, are where are where million are where the majority of the United States' black population lives as well. And so, we think that pursuing a national single payer campaign is key for racial justice. It is key for you know not not leaving the poorest states. Um, and the people who are suffering under the most reactionary governments uh, in the United States out to dry. Um, and so our March proposal came out of that logic of needing something to tie together um, campaigns across, um, across the nation, right? Now, we've since moved across that proposal um, because partly really because people across DSA felt that it was sort of a substitution for um, for a longer-term strategy rather than a long-term strategy in itself, right? Um, people pointed out that in order for that a lot nowadays people are using marches as a sort of replacement for organizing rather than organizing itself, right? Um, and so we shifted away from the march and now we're exploring a lot of different strategies, but we're still pursuing that that national characteristic, right? Um, uh, people in DC have developed have been developing a lot of interesting ideas. Um, there's a paper written up by the, uh, I believe it's the co-chair of the DC chapter uh, that really focuses on targeting the private insurance companies that control um, insurance as a strategy for for destabilizing and and overwhelming our healthcare system into the point of sort of creating a crisis and and making it um, making it necessary to confront the the crisis of healthcare, right? And so um, they're proposing enroll, doing a mass campaign to enroll veterans with um, with healthcare. They're doing, they're proposing a mass campaign to enroll people in Medicaid, which actually is under enrolled. Um, a, there are a lot of people who are eligible for Medicaid who are not enrolled in Medicaid, right? And so enrolling the actual numbers of people who are eligible from for Medicaid would make it very, very clear that the system is um, not serving as many people as it could be. Um, it talks about organizing people to not pay their medical debt 
their medical debt that is owed to private insurance companies. They're, they're talking about organizing people to refuse paying those debt. Um, and so, yes, it's not possible under the Trump administration to win federal single payer and federal single payer legislation. I don't think that's possible. But I do think that there is something to starting to pursue something before it's possible, right? I think that it's totally possible in eight years, depending on who's in the White House after Trump, I think it's totally possible that we could win federal single payer, right? But it's going to be a lot less possible if we don't start fighting for it now. If we start fighting for it, you know, on the first day of four years from now, I think we're going to be in a much worse position to push for that kind of legislation, right? If we start fighting for it now, we're going to be in a much different position four years from now when who knows, maybe the balance of forces will be better for us to push for it. And I think that that's our responsibility as socialists. All right. So there actually was a Medicare for all march on Washington last Monday. And there are a number of groups that like went. And then also there was a there were some DSA groups, one in particular that I know of in Michigan that did solidarity marches uh, on their state capitals like that happened in Michigan and it was, it was cool to see. Um, the reason why I bring that up is that, you know, it's not about the opposition. Or, sorry, oops, I shut the door. All right, the reason why I bring those examples up is that the discussion shouldn't be just about the tactic of the March on Washington. I don't think that there was anything wrong with momentum considering that as a campaign tactic, right? To me, what the issue is, is how do you actually, what's the process for organizing around a successful campaign to, to win the demand, right? So one of the groups that's per, that participated in the March on Washington last, like on Monday the 24th, is a group called Put People First in Pennsylvania. And what they set out to do is they, they built a mass organization and they went out and door knocked and then canvassed and got people to rally around the idea that human needs are human rights. This is before they had a real campaign, right? They pulled everybody into this membership convention and they all got to talking and they came up with, oh, universal health care. That's our, that's our campaign. And the, the method for pursuing it was to build organizers, to develop leaders in every single county in Pennsylvania, right? So they went out and, and not just like organizers, staffers or something. I mean, the actual people that, need to, that are already in need of free health care or using it like disabled people, elderly people, people of color, women, like this is who they're, they're who's uh, in, among their ranks from a lot of different backgrounds. They, they unite the rural and the urban. And so when PPF, which has built a base, right? When, when PPF did this uh, and participated in this march, they were immediately able to back it up, use the momentum from that march to back it up, to call for nine different town halls, back to back to back, boom to hit on their issue, to keep it driving forward and to continue the process of developing their leaders and, and uh, pursuing their campaign, right? And the methods that they're using to do it are, are deep organizing, base building methods, right? That are anchored in connecting people across differences and using trust-based organizing relationships to develop leaders and to develop poor people and like marginalized people, people of color, women, to actually have political power in the here and now, and, and to have the skills to actually fight. And so one of the things that that means is that 
because their members are disabled and, and the like, what they end up having to do is having to fight the system as it exists as they try to bring forth a system uh, that, could, that could be. So like when, they're, when insurance companies mess with their members, they run actions on those insurance companies. It's what helps develop the, the, the consciousness and the, 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 not, the content knowledge, because they also do political development through this, and the, and the, and the confidence of this base of people, right? In order to keep in for the long haul. You're talking about, like I think Ella was mentioning, you know, we're looking at an eight-year eight year out plan, maybe. I mean, I don't foreclose the, po- the possibility that the rev could pop off tomorrow and then, <laughs> and then <laughs> Donald Trump is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Healthcare, man, just please. You know? Yeah, yeah. We can leave that possibility, but not bet on it. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But I think the key thing is, how, how do we actually prepare our base, whatever that base could be? Um, how do we actually build that? How do we actually create a constituency capable of sustaining struggle across the, very, the various ups and downs of a campaign, right? So that, so that you, people can be confident, right? It sucks to just feel disempowered and then like you see a story on the news, Donald Trump is about to do this, and like John McCain is about to do that, and then you just have your heart in your chest like, ah! You know, what's going to happen? Whereas if you have that base, if you have that organizing foundation and those relationships, you know that you can make it to the next fight, right? Because these people are here with you. And that's the kind of culture that we need to create as we pursue this de- these demands. And I personally believe that if we're talking about it nationally, because, because the other part of pushing for a national campaign isn't just that like, uh, isn't just that it'll tie the chapters together. It's also that we get to set the narrative. We get to actually set the political horizon. We get to create new possibilities as we d- d- create, the, create the campaign to win the demand, right? So that's why I'm saying that if we take up this abolitionist framework and call for divestment at the same time, it expands that constituency. It doesn't, like, like if you want to actually deal with with uh, black people or dealing with a racial justice issue, you have to actually stake it, stake the particularity of what's happening to the, to the universal demand. You, and, the, and the best way to do that is to, is to not just like, not to just t- tack on like, yes, this is obviously gonna disproportionately help black people, blah, blah, blah. No, to, to, but to say, this is actively going to change the conditions in your community because we're going to attack the system that is brutalizing you in order to justify not having to fund healthcare because the two are connected, right? That, 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 that claim and that push is so compelling. I can, run into the, I can run into the community and talk about that and organize around that, right? And if we really commit to, to, to a divestment reinvestment framework on this issue of healthcare, then it doesn't matter, like the, the campaign tactic of the march that's, that's just one thing. But if we commit to the horizon, that's way, that's, that's inspiring, that's transformative. And that's what we need to be pushing when we're talking about national campaigns, is the national campaign is an opportunity to be transformative. That's the point. So, yeah. I'm glad you uh, pointed out the work that Put People First is doing in Pennsylvania, tying together this big picture vision of political economic transformation to very local struggles and organizing for listeners who missed it. I interviewed one of the organizers behind that group, uh, my friend Nizmi Zarenko, in January on The Dig. So go into the archives and check that out. She's one of the smartest 
thinkers about political organizing around. I want to pause and step back for a moment. There's, there's, uh, in the last few minutes, there's been some debate, which is great, but I want to ask both of you briefly. Um, DSA is democratic, which means there are differences of opinions and that people will debate those differences, but it's also an organization, which means at the end of the day, there should be some unity of action, that the debate should be comradely. Um, as the organization grows and probably grows in the variety of opinions contained within it, how do you see that taking place? Well, right now, I mean, we have to change the internet culture of the group. That's one thing. That's why we're proposing trainings and organizing. Because it's easy for people to savage each other and to talk all this crap and mock each other and be just be really nasty um, when you're not organizing together, when you don't have that relationship, when you don't feel close to each other. And, and that's, that's part of the issue, I think. That's one of the first things we have to tackle because part of the popularity um, of the group is, is due to recruitment through like Chapo Trap House and, and other, other types of media outlets that are internet-based, we need to actually ground people, ground the culture of this organization in organizing work. So for example, you know, for me, it's this abolition thing is not some stuff I'm just talking about on the internet. Like later today at, at 5 p.m., I'm going to one of the hotspots where people get killed here in Chicago. Because when people talk about Chicago violence, they talk about it like the entire city is under siege, but really it's relegated to like poor and black neighborhoods in particular and Latino ones too. It's the poor people that are dying, right, in specific spaces. So there's some organizing happening here to intervene in that. And that, again, is part of this abolitionist framework. How do we actually confront this issue of violence without re relying on the oppressive or repressive authority of the, uh, of the prison and police systems, right? How do we actually do violence prevention and intervention and rehabilitation? Those are some of the questions, right? It's about violence, which forces people to have to deal with their racialized anxieties. Because the truth of the matter is, and, and racists use the left's lack of, of interest in talking about this to actually do all of their recruitment, all that alt-right stuff, this is the type of stuff that they're talking about. How they, they talk about, this is how violent black people are, and no one's talking about it, and no, no, we need to defend ourselves as a race, blah, blah, blah. And they'll take stats like this. Like, for example, between 1980 and 2008, 53% of all homicide offenders, these are, these are the killers, 53% of them were black. And 48% of the victims of homicide between, those, between 1980 and 2008 were black, right? Black people like me make up, have made up no more than 13% of the population during that time. And so this is the reality that we have to confront, and that's something that I'm interested in. We got to actually get people praxis, walking out that stuff that you were online talking about. You out here running your mouth, wanting to say, oh, this person's wrong, or oh, that person's wrong. What you doing about it? Where to work at? So uh, faith without deeds is dead, and we need to create that culture in this group, and that's going to cut down on the, the sniping and the, and the, dis, dis, the disrespect in, in this group. On the uh, a, a quick uh, side note for listeners interested in what RL just said about uh, the need for the left to talk about street violence so that the right doesn't leverage it to its own purposes as it always does, uh, check out my recent interview with James Foreman Jr. on just that subject. Um, Ella, uh, on the question of, of, of how uh, the organization is can be both democratic, which means debating, and both remain an organization, which means that the debate be comradely and uh, result in some 
unity of action? You know, I think that a lot of this is due to the fact that um, a lot of us are pretty new to a, a democratic organization that has debates like this, right? Like comradely debate, I, it's like a muscle that you need to exercise in order to to like be accustomed to it and to be able to to do it well, right? Um, our larger political culture and also the culture of the internet is so so toxic that people are genuinely not trained in how to do it. Um, they're not accustomed to how to do it, right? Um, and so, uh, honestly, I think the way to get better at at comradely debate is to do more of it um, and to find ways that we can model it across the organization. Um, uh, and so that's why, you know, we, we're proposing a petition process for debate um, that would make sure that um, that if a certain percentage of the DSA membership feels that it's important to to debate something about DSA's political future in times when it's not the national convention, um, in times when you know uh, we're not putting forward resolutions and everything, then it can organize the DSA membership to vote to have that debate and to do that, right? Um, and so uh, I think it's really important to keep doing it and to keep like batting on that door because I, I really think that it's a skill that people have to learn um, and it's not just inherent um, and, uh, and, uh, and modeling that kind of comradely debate will help to little by little um, serve as a model that can counteract what we see online and what we see in our larger um, political culture. That said, while Momentum proposes um, the like allowing caucuses to form within DSA, I think it's really important to preserve the uh, the multi-tendency spaces of DSA where where the work is actually being done, you know? So, you know, earlier I talked about how um, the, the structure of the working groups can help to, um, that we need spaces that are not those working groups to bring people together as an organization, right? But those working groups are still really, really important because they're spaces where people who have lots of different political views and disagree on a lot of things can come together and actually do the work together. Um, and so a lot of people say that um, it's really amazing how, you know, they'll be on Twitter all day and they'll be feeling really, really disillusioned, um, really depressed, um, feeling like there's just nothing else but all this toxic infighting, right? And then they go to a DSA meeting in real life um, and people are doing the work and they're trying to actually fight um, and they're all together in one room um, and they've decided to be there together despite their differences, right? Um, and that it feels totally different um, than being online and fighting with people online, right? Um, and so I think that we need to preserve that element of the DSA culture as much as possible. You know, uh, RL talks a lot about praxis and, and training and actually doing this stuff on the ground. Um, and I agree that we do need to deepen that because uh, that is 
what, you know, the more abstract the debates become and the more like internet-y the debates become, the more sectarian and like toxic they become, right? If we have them linked to the real work that people are doing day to day in their chapters, um, then there is, there's something that will keep people together even when they disagree, right? Uh, and so that's what I think needs to be done to, to preserve and extend the, the level of comradely debate in DSA. Yeah, it's uh, quite the quandary. The internet has been really great for the growth of groups like DSA, but on the other hand, the last thing the left in the U.S. or really anywhere needs is a technology that can exacerbate the tendency towards sectarianism and infighting has not served us particularly well, historically speaking. Hey, this is Larry Website, the Duke's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. Hi, my name is Scott Kilpatrick. I'm a DSA member in New York City chapter. If we believe that Bernie would have won, we already have the basis for a socialist platform that appeals to the majority of working people in America. So what in the momentum and praxis platforms will augment Bernie's in helping DSA build our capacity? Thanks. Okay, RL first, then Ella, fast. Well, there's a lot to love about Sanders' campaign and the platform. It's not the upper limit of my political imagination. And in fact, I think it's very important that we create a political horizon now that even extends beyond it, to want more, to talk about more, and to talk about transformative demands to get there and to use organizing, deep base building organizing, to have the power or the reservoir of people who have tight bonds to actually implement this type of stuff. Because at the end of the day, it's like Tom Hardy in the, in the movie Inception. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. You know, it's okay to go for more, right? And so that's why we put out that abolitionist perspective. And, and that's, what, that's what Bernie Sanders got hammered on, actually, is um, and unfairly, I think, in many cases. But I think if you actually incorporate this into the horizon and talk about repression and brutality and the like in a, in a way that's tied to your actual project rather than a side piece then I think we'll actually be able to get the Sanders platform and be able to cut off all kinds of um, stuff from unfair accusations. Ella. So I think the two things in our platform that really extend what Bernie put forward are first, obviously, internationalism. Uh, that was probably the most glaring absence from Bernie's uh, program, uh, a real internationalist uh, campaign. And the other thing would be our rank and file labor strategy. Uh, if you really think about it, you know, the 13 million people that voted for Bernie Sanders, um, what hit me after the election is what if all of those 13 million people were organizing unions in their workplaces, right? That would actually change the balance of forces in this country and put us a lot closer to achieving the demands that Bernie Sanders put forward, right? Um, and so I, I think that those are the two things that really extend the, the program that Bernie put forward. Excellent. I just lost a lot of money on RL answering that so quickly, but uh, second question. <laughs> Hi, Dan. I'm going to give us another shot. Uh, you might also mention I'm with uh, Eugene, Oregon, DSA. Sean Monahan wrote an excellent guide to what makes good members of the National Political Committee, which I'll summarize as have the time, the temperament, and the ex 
experience for the day-to-day work of the NPC. I'm concerned that the political slates muddy the waters with respect to what really matters for selecting candidates to vote for. Additionally, presenting a slate with enough candidates to form a majority gives the impression of attempting to seize control of the organization. Why did you choose to run with a slate? Okay, this one, Ella first, RL second, and go. So I chose to run with a slate because uh, I think it's important to articulate points of unity um, with people that you do have points of unity with, right? Um, And it also just makes it a a lot more legible to the delegates at the convention. Um, You know, there are... 16 spots on the National Political Committee. Um, If we all were articulating our politics individually, it would actually be more confusing, right? And so the the format of slates helps us to consolidate those views a little bit. Um, And then I I couldn't really understand it, but I think part of the question was about the time and the temperament to commit to the MPC. Um, You know, I have been a sort of foot soldier in DSA for two years now. Before that, I was a foot soldier in the labor movement. Um, I have seen what it takes to build up chapters, um, and I don't expect uh, the work of the National Political Committee to be any easier. In fact, I expect it to be... um, you know, a whole host of different demands. Um, but I, I do believe that I'm up to it because I've already tackled that that kind of commitment in my chapter. RL. All right. So the reason why I, I ran with this slate and why we all did is because we all have a mixture of skills and abilities. Like, yeah, I'm okay at talking if I can keep my answers brief sometimes. <laughs> But there are other things that I bring to the table as well in terms of writing and strategy and campaigning. Because I, I was a staffer in, at Unite here, and I was in the corporate, I'm corporate research and campaign strategy um, section. And so I know how to build comprehensive campaigns from the ground up. I've done it. That's why I have done a dues campaign, blah, blah, blah. But Leslie uh, from Oklahoma, Leslie Driscoll, she managed, she's, she's an administrator at a hospital, right? And she manages a $3 million budget. She, she say she... There's, she's, she's amazing. You know, Celeste also runs a, a museum. She has programming and budgeting experience as well. These people on our, on our team are going to revolutionize the way that this organization functions in a, in a day-to-day level because they have these certain administrative skills to, de- to deal with the growth in, in membership. So that's why we ran as a slate was to actually use someone like me who has a public, more of a public profile to attach that to other people where we not only share like some common political interests, but we also have skills that complement each other. Mike's from the military. He has that whole, I can't wait till you meet the people so that you can understand the joy that I get just being around them and the skills that they bring to the table. So I hope that you vote for Praxis. It's not about a power move to take over the organization. It's about having skills that cover all of the different things that the organization needs to do in a day-to-day way, day-to-day basis. Regardless of what happens, I imagine there will be, uh, Praxis and momentum and people from other slates and no slate at all on the NPC. Last but far from least is the question of electoral politics. DSA grew to the extent that it has, has grown to the extent that it has in pretty significant part because of Bernie Sanders' success in the Democratic Party's primary. Um, It's something that he, there's no way he would have pulled off if he'd run as a third party candidate. At the same time, uh, the Democratic Party is remains what it has been for a long time, which is a aligned in large part with um, major corporations and and Wall Street 
interests that time and again over the la- in recent decades have sold out working class Americans and imprisoned them in mass and launched foreign wars. So how should DSA approach electoral politics? Um, and specifically, how should it relate to the Democratic Party? I mean, I can talk a, a little bit about this from my experience uh, getting the electoral working group off the ground in Brooklyn. Um, there are a lot of reasons why we it's important to start to articulate an electoral strategy um, that I saw working on the ground in Brooklyn. Um, you know, it's obviously vital that the DSA participate in electoral politics. I mean, elections are what brought us this membership surge. An election is what politicized a huge swath of Americans um, these past two years, right? Um, it's the most. It's one of the most important platforms for reaching working people who, you know, are working 60 hours a week, um, who are really busy and who don't like have the time to participate in like theoretical debates all the time. Um, you know, elections are most people's like first and last contact with politics, right? And so it's really important that we participate in them. But at the same time, uh, they can prove a huge weight on um, local chapters organizing, right? Um, they um, Running an election is a huge time suck. It's a huge energy suck. It's a huge volunteer suck. Um, it can actually end up narrowing demographically your base because um, with how complicated and legalistic our election and ballot and primary laws law are, um, you know, running an election campaign really, really prizes the knowledge and skills of highly educated people um, who can navigate um, legal restrictions, who know how to read ballot laws, um, who, you know, who are really good at navigating like super bureaucratic institutions, right? And so um, it ends up, it, so pursuing election after election after election can end up um, centering the leadership of like highly educated, probably wealthier, probably whiter people, right? Over the leadership of a, of a wider base, right? And so, um, you know, while it's really key that we participate in elections. Uh, it's also key that we start to figure out some strategies and guidelines for what kind of elections we want to participate in, um, what candidates we do want to put forward, um, what's our what's our process for evaluating when it's worth it to, to do an electoral campaign and when it's not, um, because chapters can spend a huge amount of energy and resources doing these these electoral campaigns that end up burning out people and actually narrowing their base and narrowing their leadership right and so um, having having a strategy on this um, is not is not necessarily imposing something from above but help helping chapters to not have to start out from scratch every single time uh, figuring out this process, right? Um, and so that's that's one reason why it's really important to articulate an electoral strategy. Now, in, in a really big picture thing, there are a lot of debates about whether we should be trying to realign the Democratic Party, whether we should be trying to start a third party. Um, Momentum's position is that it should be the goal of the left to start a third party, but that's not going to happen overnight. It's not magic. Um, we have huge uh, 
challenges around um, third party ballots that really prevent us from uh, doing that right away. Um, we know it's incredibly restrictive and we know that we have to use the, the Democratic Party ballot line sometimes, right? At the same time, people who say things like, oh, we can take advantage of the, the structure of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, we, we think we have to use the ballot line sometimes as basically a defensive measure and a, as a way to um, intervene in elections um, when we wouldn't be able to otherwise. But there is, we, we feel the need to point out that the U.S. Democratic Party is not like parties abroad, there are no structures, you know, um, there's a ballot line and there's a fundraising department that is not going to help us. Um, like the structure of the Democratic Party is fundraising and that fundraising is not inclined to help us, is not, is biased against us, right? Um, and so uh, we think it's really important to emphasize that um, there aren't, that the Democratic Party doesn't have democratic internal structures that actually allow members to take over in the way that people have, have started to take over the Labor Party in, in the United Kingdom. Um, it's a totally different situation, totally different structures. And so um, what we're advocating is a party beyond a party um, uh, strategy. What would be, you know, using the Democratic uh, Party line when we have to, um, uh, but always towards the goal of building an independent electoral cap capacity with an independent base that can hold accountable their independent candidates, right? Um, and so that's that's what we're shooting for with our electoral strategy. RL, uh, what's Praxis' take on electoral politics? Well, first of all, Ali Cohn, who is out of Tennessee, is the exec on the executive committee for the Knox County Democratic Party, and she's chair for the. Uh, Knox County Democratic Party Progressive Action Committee. So she has um, joined the group uh, um, in response to the Bernie Sanders campaign, which she worked on heavily. Uh, and she's in the South, and so she exists outside of these like enclaves of you know the 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 scene of socialism, you know, more broadly. Um, she lived in in the South most of her life, actually, including the last. I think she was in Florida for, for a decade before that, before she was in Tennessee, right? So um, she's got three kids and she spends her time. That's, that's how she, that was one of her um, points of entry into politics was in the, in the Democratic Party. And then I also mentioned to you that she did these solidarity circles and became this activist after the Sanders campaign. And, and I think that's important because that was a tactical decision by, the pre, by previous leadership to endorse that campaign. And it paid dividends by producing an alley, someone that I respect deeply and that I think is a really solid leader for this organization. She represents the type of people who have gravitated towards DSA after through the Sanders campaign. And not only that, she has a leadership stake in the party. And so that's important. And so um, she actually, we were talking about this this morning, actually, where she said, uh, She's able to pull, to pull people into DSA precisely because it's not a party at this stage. And her analysis, and, and I share this, we all share this, is that like we need a revolution in this society, period. Like it has to be, we believe in a revolutionary uh, 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 approach, right? And, um, but we know that we can't just make that happen like this, right? That that, that, that revolutionary moment 
and, and movement is bigger than any one of us and even just the little little practice team or even DSA as a whole, right? So why we say that, um, and, and I want to pivot to, to my own experience for a moment. Why I say that is because the betrayal of um, that, that candidates often, uh, that often happen with not just candidates, but elected officials when it comes to holding them accountable to a promise or to, to whatever is um, structural more than it is personal. Like I lived in Bolivia um, in 2008 and Evo Morales, who is the first indigenous president in South America and I believe Central America, was elected in 2005. In 2008, the right wing launched a coup against the government. 27 people were killed the first week that I was in that country. It was a state of emergency. A state of emergency was declared. I didn't know whether I was gonna be able to stay in Bolivia actually, right? Evo had a base. It was part of the, the union movement, which is he came out of that, and the coca, the, which was related to the, to the coca growers union. And it was part of this um, pan-indigenous solidarity block that, that he created as well, that kind of rode the crest of um, the water war that happened in Bolivia in order to actually seize state power. So he had a real base, right? And he did real things for that base, especially indigenous people who are the majority, actually, of that country. He did something real by, re- they, they, they actually shifted the constitution to give indigenous people autonomy and control over their land, right? So that was 2008. 2011, by, by 2011, because the economy was dependent on the export of hydrocarbons, like when the prices fell, Evo was like, oh, I'm gonna start drilling in what's called the Tiffany's to, to explore for gas, right? And he did that because of the structure of international capitalism. So the betrayal, like, happened, right? There wasn't any, they did all the steps right. They had base, they had a radical vision, they were able to seize state power and implement it, but the structures of capitalism produced this betrayal, right? And then in 2015, after, like, his anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist rhetoric and, and actual politics on the ground, because they expelled the U.S. ambassador while I was there. By 2015, because of how the, the structure, because of structural reasons, he was visiting New York, going to Wall Street, asking for money from finance capital because they needed it, okay? So a lot of these issues, as far as philosophizing around which type of first steps we should take, like, I, I think we shouldn't, side, we shouldn't forget that ultimately what's going to change this is a revolution. And that... Really, what we need to be doing now is focusing on meeting the alleys. Shoot, meeting my mama. My mama's a Democrat. I would work with my mama, okay? <laughs> I would work with my mama on some real stuff that is consistent with the type of program we're trying to build here, right? Like, for example, my mom is in the Democratic Party. I love and respect her, obviously. Um, but she, even she recognizes that barbarism is here, and she is out here going hard out in Minnesota, trying to transform this city into a sanctuary city that would have an institutionalized commitment to freedom from both deportation and police brutality. And that's, that's what this, she's a 60 years, 60 something years, sorry mama, I just snitched on your age, my bad. She's a, she's a woman who has been a lifelong Democrat and who is now talking about, we need to rev, we need to take down deportations. Like my mom had never talked about deportation before in her life. When the immigration march happened in 2006, both of us were sitting around like, 
where did all these people come from? You know, when the strike happened in 2006, we didn't know nothing about it, right? And now, in two, like in 10 years later, she's out here leading the charge with a bunch of other people talking about deportations stop here. So having a hardline position in the abstract and treating my mom and treating Ali as disposable when the problem is actually structural, that to me is, is, a, is a real issue. It's something that Ali and I were talking about and it's something that we at Praxis agree with. So whatever people's positions are, and there's a lot of them, there's a lot of implications for the type of route you take with elections. So the last thing I'll say is because of all of that, the way we need to we need to embrace elections in a case by case basis, kind of like what um, what Ella is saying. But I have to start with the mass, with the actual constituency building, and understand what people's needs are. And then, as we organize around them, say housing, for example, um, we organize around like tenants unions or or what have you, right? Contest. It's important to contest the capitalists at the point of, of, of power, actually, at the relationship between landlord and tenant, for example. We need to contest that directly because the, because the landlords, the capitalists, that's where their power actually lies is in those relations, right? And the state is used to legitimize their dominance, right? So we need to both contest them directly and then if it's necessary, if, it's, if it actually helps us to secure a victory which we are already organizing around, I think it makes sense to then deal with the election issue and dedicate by and by that I mean like dedicate real resources to it because there's something that we want to secure. The reason why we have to have the organizing on the ground outside of it is because what I learned working at the Gap when we got the schedule policy changed at corporate, we didn't actually have a real uh, a union on the ground. We didn't have shop floor power because so we couldn't implement it for real. So implementation again is so key, and that's why we have to build independent power bases that contest power contest capitalist power directly. But that's just my opinion, right? There's a, Praxis itself has multiple points of view. Like I said, Ali has a different spin on it that talks about like how to actually function in a place, in a red state like Tennessee and be new to this, to this process. So I don't think we need to front load it with some sort of hardline position. What we need to do is be open to relationships, open to the possibility of change and understand that like the, what actually has to happen is a revolution. Well, we've talked about a lot of things about DSA for a long time and didn't even get to what to do about the ecological crisis and retrenchment of resource apartheid under climate change, but that'll have to wait till next time. Um, Ella and RL, thanks to you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Ella Mahoney is an assistant editor at Jacobin and is running for DSA's National Political Committee on the Momentum Slate. R.L. Stevens is Jacobin's A. Philip Randolph Fellow and is running for NPC on the Praxis Slate. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a friendly review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and then they'll listen to us and so on and so forth. Please make propaganda on our behalf. And please find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. 
even a few bucks goes a long way. 